And I would encourage you to do that because when we're done, you're going to have a whole book. And I want you to have it. Uh, we're laboring over this. We labor in the Word of God. My calling is Emmanuel labor. Some of you will get that tomorrow morning when you wake up. I know what he meant. I, I involve myself in Emmanuel labor. That's my calling. We, we labor in the Word. I want you to know the Word of God because I know if you know the Word of God, it's going to do all kinds of things for your life. Uh, least of which is you'll have good success and victory over the enemy. And so we're uh, in a walk down the Roman road, and look at what we're talking about the, tonight, the guilt of the hypocrite. Let me tell you, he doesn't pull any punches in Romans. He's not out to win friends and, and uh, influence people. Well, he is out to influence people, but not win friends. He doesn't really care what we think. This is the Word of God talking to, our, to us, to mankind. And uh, so let's pray over this, and then we'll get right into the Word of God tonight. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your Word. Yeah, there is nothing like your word. And Lord, this word is unlike any book in the world. This Bible is your word, the inspired word of God. And we pray you'll give us understanding and open our understanding, give us divine insight so that we can have victory, so that we can see life through your eyes and understand much of what is happening in our own life. We thank you for your illumination tonight. In Jesus' name. Now, will you breathe a prayer and just say, Speak to me, Lord. I receive your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. God bless you. Uh, I'm, I'm attempting to do a chapter a week, and I think we're going to be able to do it. And I know you're skeptical knowing me, but hang tough. I think we're going to be able to do it. Now, we saw last time that mankind, in his spiral downward into sin, made three tragic exchanges. And let's look at what those exchanges were. The word exchange in Romans 1 is used three times. And it says man exchanged something for something else. And so let's see what he exchanged. They exchanged the worship of God for idols uh, of wood and, and steel and idols that were dumb and couldn't hear and couldn't answer prayer, but they worshiped them. Then they exchanged the truth of God for a lie which we're doing in our nation right now at warp speed. Third, they exchange natural relationships for unnatural ones. Now, I want you to notice that this is a, a decline. This is incremental. First, I don't want God in my life. I want an idol. Second, I don't want His truth. I want a lie. Third, I don't want natural relationships. Now, why in the world do you come down to that? Because when you throw out God and you throw out the truth, flesh is open to anything. All right? Your flesh will do anything, as we're going to see tonight. It'll go anywhere. Left to itself, without the teaching of God, without the Word of God, you spiral down. There is no other way to go. You will spiral down without God and without His Word. Now, in return, what did God do? God gave them over three times. Now, what does it mean to be given over? It means that God basically says, all right, you don't want me and you don't want my truth and you don't want my moral law, I'm going to turn you over to what you want to do. So he just says, go on, go on. My, my grace is off of you. My restraints are off of you. Go. Now, that is 
the wrath of God being poured out. The wrath of God is not just fire and lightning and earthquakes and storms and revelations kind of stuff. It is the manifestation of the wrath of God when he turns over a person or turns over a country, turns over a culture. He says, okay, go your own way. And he's done it many, many times in history, many times. And we can read all about it, but we don't learn anything from it. What did he turn them over to? Sexual impurity, the first one. Shameful lust, the second one. And a reprobate mind. Now, we got down to the third one last week, and we had to stop. But sexual, notice that when man goes into decline, he invariably goes into sexual perversion. Because we'll turn to something that is the closest thing to God, the closest thing to a spiritual experience. We'll turn to it. And God says, all right, go. You want to go your own way? Go. And man sprouled into impurity. Then it got worse, into shameful lusts. And then it ended up in a reprobate mind. Now, I'm going to tell you, I see our country. Now, I look at it every day. I see our country. In my humble opinion, you can chew the meat, spit out the bones. You don't have to agree with me. But in my humble opinion, our nation is being turned over right now to a reprobate mind. Well, what's, what's a reprobate mind? It comes from a Greek word that means void of judgment. You can't tell any longer what is true. Void of the ability to judge accurately. So suddenly, right becomes wrong, wrong becomes right, up is down, down is up, in is out, out is in. Light is dark, dark is light. When you are turned over to a reprobate mind, let's look at it. Depraved reason is another way to put it. For a third time in five verses, Paul wrote that when people disregard God's revelation in nature, when they push his light out, he gives them over to the normal consequences that follow. And here they are. In verse 28, Paul declared that God gave them over to a depraved or a reprobate mind void of judgment. Don't you wonder sometimes when you watch the news or you read the news or you see what people are doing in our culture, they can do the most ungodly, wicked things and say there's nothing wrong with this. And you go, how can they come to that conclusion? Well, you can easily come to that conclusion if you have been turned over to a reprobate mind because you can't judge right and wrong anymore. You certainly can't see things through God's eyes anymore. Look what it says. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to do what, everybody? Say it with me. Retain the knowledge of God. So they kicked the knowledge of God out. We don't want God's knowledge. Don't want it in our schools. Don't want our children being taught it. We don't want the knowledge of God anywhere in our culture. Go away, God. That's what we say. He gave them over to a depraved mind. To do what ought not to be done. That tells you right there, the way you think is what you're going to do. Your actions flow from your thoughts. Turning from the light of revelation prevents a person from thinking correctly about the issues of life. It's so important. We teach our children about God, the commandments. You know, I tell church people, don't gripe about the commandments not being in school. If they're not glued on your refrigerator door at home i've got the ten commandments on my refrigerator at home every commandment is a different color i want those commandments in my house i want my kids looking at them 
I want visitors looking at them. The commandments. Because they save humanity when you know them. Well, depraved or reprobate mind means void of judgment, as we said. Once God's revelation is rejected, the ability to think correctly about the issues of life becomes flawed. You can't anymore. The knowledge of God is the foundation of all knowledge. It's impossible to understand the moral world we live in when we detach ourselves from the God who created it all. He created a moral universe, and if you kick him out, and you say, well, there is no God, I'll do whatever I want to do, then he says, okay, and he turns you, and you spiral down, and what do you do? You lose your morals. You lose all your morals. You become depraved. You become perverse. That's what he's telling us in Romans 1. All right? Given up to impurity, sexual perversion, and a reprobate mind, Paul next paints a sobering picture of the lifestyles of the rich and famous. I'm sorry. <laughs> of the God rejected. But this is the way the rich and famous often live. Don't kid yourself. Money doesn't buy you joy or happiness or peace at all. Some of the most miserable people in the world are rich. Good thing they got money because that's all they got. Now watch this. He's going to give us a snapshot of the character that takes place inside somebody who rejects the knowledge of God and who is turned over. What we're about to read about is a, a people who have been turned over, and this is what their character becomes. And it's less than stellar. Abandoned to their own sinful natures, here's what it looks like. Verse 29, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, every kind, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways. They're not satisfied with what's around them. They've got to invent new ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Paul calls, calls that wicked. You're not in a good list here. If you're in this list, and he says, look at that, disobey their parents. And what about gossips? They're in that list. And slanderers, whoa. He goes on. This is quite a list. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they put their seal of approval on those who practice them. Is that not happening in our culture right now? I mean, look at this church. Let your eyes be open. Let your mind be renewed. Paul, by the Holy Ghost, has nailed the way a culture goes when it rejects God. So how, now we've got our culture approving of what he said in Romans 1 is wicked, perverse, and unnatural. And our culture is now saying, our president is now saying, it's normal, it's right, it's good, it should be. Uh-uh, no, it's not. Now, now look at, now we come to chapter 2 now, and it's going to focus on God's indictment on all hypocrites, regardless of race or religion, culture or creed. He's going to deal with hypocrisy. 
Both Jews and Gentiles are in the crosshairs of God's judgment in chapter 2. Now, before I go into this, let me tell you, if, if all we had was the first three chapters of Romans, we'd be walking around depressed, dude. Because he's, what he's going to do in Romans 1 through 3 is prove that every human being on earth deserves the judgment and wrath of God. He's going to put all of us under sin, and no one is exempt. And if you were left, if we stopped reading at almost the end of chapter 3 and stopped there and didn't read on, it'd be very grim for us. But he's leading us toward the only answer for the sin of mankind. So stay with it now, and let's see what he says in chapter 2. Everybody's in the crosshairs here after focusing in chapter 1 on the gross and flagrant sins of the openly ungodly. God turns his attention to respectable sinners, respectable sinners, who, thinking themselves better than others, fall into the same sins as those they pretend to despise. Now, this is a telling verse, and I've quoted it so much in my life. Look what he says in verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Well, why would that be? Because you who pass judgment do the very same things. Uh-oh. Now, let me be clear about something. He is not saying don't judge people. If you don't judge people, you're not even as smart as wild animals that judge an enemy animal when it's approaching them or the birds in my backyard that judge a hawk when they see it and they flee. He's not saying don't judge people. He's saying don't harshly, cruelly, unforgivingly judge people when the same thing is lurking in your own backyard. What did Jesus say? Get the two-by-four out of your own eye before you try to operate on somebody else. Matthew 7. Right? Now look what he says in verse 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Anytime God judges church, it's, tr it's based on truth. Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Rhetorical question. The answer is, he will always do what is right. So when he judges, it's right. Now, here Paul is addressing who? The Jews. Anybody in here full-blood Jewish? I asked this last week. I thought maybe one of you slipped in this week. Anybody? So we're all Gentiles. All right. Well, he's talking to the Jews here at the beginning of Romans chapter 2. And the Jews had approved of God's judgment on the pagan world. Anytime God would judge the pagan world, they were going, Amen. They deserved it. Hallelujah. And they were snooty, and they were judgmental, and they were insufferable. And unlike the Gentiles described in chapter 1, verse 32, who not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them, the Jews condemn those things. And in doing so, they reveal a knowledge of God. See, when they would condemn something, they'd say, we're, the reason we're condemning that is because we know what God's Word says and that that is wrong. But here's the deal. And they said, he's got a right to judge that. The Jews assume that their approval of God's judgment upon the pagan world proved that they were right with God. See, if I'm sitting around judging somebody, it makes me feel better, doesn't it? You know why we judge people? It makes us feel better about ourselves. 
You ever stepped into just a nest of gossip? Why, is there, why, why do people gossip all the time? You know what they're doing? They're trying to push someone down so they can elevate themselves and feel better about themselves. That's why they do it. Now, he said, this should have been true, but it was not. Just because they were judging the sin of others did not mean they were right with God. The Jews were practicing the very things they judged in others. He said in verse 3, So when you, talking to the Jews again, a mere man, pass judgment on them, the pagans, and yet you do the same things, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Uh-uh. No, and that's where chapter 2 is going. They're going to get it too. Judgment. Now look at this. Paul is charging... By passing judgment on the Gentiles, the Jews were condemning themselves because they were doing the very same things. Now, here's a little principle for you, and this is worth remembering all the time. Judging in others what we ourselves practice invites God's judgment. If you're walking around saying, you know, I know they're an alcoholic. I know they're a drunk. Hallelujah. I just know they are. You're inviting God's judgment. God will say to you what he said to the Jews judging the Gentiles. You are a hypocrite. You know what it's doing when you do that? It's treating with contempt the kindness and the patience of God because he's been kind with you and patient with you to try to get you free. And so he says, as long as you're not free, you're struggling to be free, you're asking God to set you free, don't harshly judge in another what you are struggling with yourself. So when you, he says, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? No. Verse 4, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness, what does it do? Read it with me. Leads you to repentance. Now, some folks are won by love. Other folks are won by fear. Some of you, you've been dealing with a child or with somebody in your life, that uh, you've been trying to love them into Jesus and it's not going to happen. So you know what God will do? God will bring something into their life that scares them good. Because some are won by love and some are won by fear. That's what the Bible says. But, but there will be a while when you're in sin, if you're messing up, straying from God, He will be kind to you, hoping that it reels you back to Him, realizing His kindness. Didn't Jesus say in Sermon on the Mount, He makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Every day, people who curse God wake up to sunshine and to rain when they need it. And God gives that to them, even though they're cursing his name. That's God. Okay? Now, here we have a key insight into the hypocrite. The sin of the hypocrite is this, is that of being indignant at other people's shortcomings while being indulgent of his own. That's the hypocrite. Now let's look at that again. The sin of the hypocrite is that of being indignant at other people's shortcomings while being indulgent of his own. Well, I'm going I'm to harshly judge that person, but boy, I want you to have all kinds of mercy on me. No, you sow mercy because you want mercy. Okay? That's the sin of the hypocrite. Is the church got people like this in it? Oh, yeah. 
And you know how many people are not in church every single Sunday that goes by? They have been burned and walked away from local church because they were struggling with something inside the church. And they were harshly judged by people who they found out later were doing some of the very same things. And so what do they say when you invite them to church? I'm not going. It's full of hypocrites. Well, that's true. If you're not one, come, we need you. It's that simple. Now, the hypocrite, look what the hypocrite does. He bashes others for the very things he allows. He finger points when four of his own fingers are pointing back at him. That's, that's, that's the hypocrite. This is not saying we shouldn't judge sin, as I've already said. It's saying that we should not harshly judge others for sins that thrive in our own backyard. The essence of hypocrisy is to allow in ourselves, we allow in ourselves what we condemn in other people. The word hypocrite comes from a word meaning to act apart as on a stage. You're a phony baloney. You put a mask on. You come in at church, hallelujah, praise the Lord, kumbaya, this and that. But you're not living it. You're not walking it. I don't know why you come. Well, there's a lot of reasons you come. You come to feel better about yourself, but you're not really being changed on the inside. You're acting out apart. And, and the church is full of people like that who are in leadership. They buy their way into deacon positions and elder positions. And some of them haven't even ever been saved. And they judge people and, and finger point and call names and make them feel like dogs when they themselves have a hundred skeletons in their own closet. God says, you get your own life clean. And then I will let you operate on the lives of other people. That's the way it ought to be. Freed people, free people. Healed people, heal people. Amen? <clears throat> so let God do a great work in your life, and you'll be a spiritual surgeon one day, removing the, the issues that other people have. Now, the hypocrite is a play actor. He puts on a show for the benefit of other people. He never gets away with it, though, with God. You may fool a hundred people, but you won't fool for a microsecond, God. He never gets away with it. Nope. It says in verse 2, now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. God's going to judge them. No other person came under more searching indictment from the Lord Jesus than the hypocrite. I got out my strong concordance, and I counted 15 times in Matthew's gospel alone, Jesus rebukes hypocrites, calls them hypocrites. The spiritual leaders walking around with their 10-pound Bibles, he called them hypocrites to their face. Nothing made Jesus matter than somebody putting on a show. What we need in church is people who are real. People who say, you know what, I'm struggling, and I'm not afraid to say I'm struggling. And then you need to have the listener say, you know what, I don't condemn you for your struggle. I struggle too. Let's pray together and get healed together instead of all this finger pointing. That day's got to end. Amen? Now, the hypocrite forgets the times. God's goodness was extended to him. He says, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing God's kindness leads you to repentance? The hypocrite's memory is short when remembering all the times God had mercy on them in order to produce repentance. Always remember from whence you have come. And if you remember from whence you have come, you will not harshly judge people you'll want to restore them. 
Because you were saved once too, in the ditch once too, hopeless and desperate once yourself. Don't forget that. Now, this is the essence of the hypocrisy of many religious folks who turn their nose up at the addicted, the crushed, the broken, and the broke. They forget that God once also delivered them from the pit. Paul continues in his indictment of the hypocrite, telling them what they face. He said, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up. Now, this, this verse ought to give you the jeebies. Because look at this. He tells we got a bank account. He says, you are storing up in your spiritual bank account wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done, says verse 6. Now what does that mean? The phrase storing up wrath is very telling. How many of you put something in your bank account this week? How many of you wish you could have? Okay, all right, now I got everybody now. Now watch this. When you put something into your bank account, there it is, it's in your bank account. It is attributed to you. It's yours. What the Bible teaches is that we've all got a spiritual bank account. And he's saying here that the sinner stores away, puts a deposit in his spiritual bank account of wickedness for judgment in a coming day. It's like making a fresh daily deposit in the savings account of your coming judgment against yourself. <laughs> you know, folks, God's a God of love, but He's a God of holiness, and He's a God that's going to judge sin. I guarantee you, as sure as you're sitting in your chair, our God is going to bring this world to judgment. And unless you're covered in the blood of the Lamb, have repented and been born again, transformed within, you're going to come under judgment. Now, it doesn't matter to me or uh, to anyone else in here whether or not you believe that. It doesn't matter because whether you believe it or not, it's going to happen to you. You will come under judgment. It's going to happen. You can't read Romans and not get that. Now, next, Paul describes the judgment of the hypocrite. First, we see that the hypocrite is judged according to his works, what he did in his life, how he lived. Look what he says, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, God will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble. And there will be distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Nobody's going to get away with it. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now this verse is, is problematic. And I'm going to tell you why. Because it sounds like we're saying, or like he's saying, if you do good, you will be saved. In other words, we have a salvation by works. Because look at what he said. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he's going to give eternal life. That sounds like a good works doctrine, but that's not what he's saying. Okay? What he's saying is, is that this passage is dealing with the basis of God's judgment. In the Bible, judgment is executed according to our works. 
Salvation is by faith. What it comes down to is this. If you don't put your faith in Christ and he washes your sins away, then you will be judged for your works. Your works have not been washed away. There is only one thing that washes away sinful works, sinful actions, a sinful life, and that's the blood. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not hugging a tree, nothing. But the blood. And if you have not been covered in the blood, then you will be judged by the works you did in your life. That's what he's saying. We're judged either by works or by faith in the blood. When a person persists in doing good and is seeking for glory and honor and incorruption and eternal life and well-doing, all that's saying is this person's been saved because they wouldn't be living like this if they had not been saved. It attests to the presence of saving faith. It goes to what James said. Uh, uh, He says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accomplished by action, is dead. If you have saving faith, you will have faith that leads to righteous works. It's that simple. If you have saving Bible faith, you will, it, it will manifest in works of righteousness. Your lifestyle will change. Your talk will change. Your thoughts will change. The way you view the world will change. It will be accompanied. Saving faith, Bible faith, is persevering faith. That's why people come to me and say, well, what about somebody that just walked away from from God? And Boy, it's been years. I say, well, faith that fizzles at the finish was faulty at the first. Did you get that? Faith that fizzles at the finish was faulty at the first. I'm not going to say you're going to have your low moments, your times you mess up, but the child of God will come back. And faith is persevering faith. Saving faith is persevering faith. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. But James says, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. It's just that simple. Saving faith changes a life. If if your life has never changed from the moment that you say you got saved and your life has never changed, you're still living the same way, I'm going to tell you right now tonight, you're not saved. Well, that's judgmental. Yes. But it's what the Bible says. If your life hasn't changed, then you had a New Year's resolution, not salvation. Because salvation changes your life. If you get saved, it's going to show. People are going to know it. You're going to know it. Saving faith is persevering faith. It moves its possessor to persevere in doing good. That's what it does. And for the person of faith, the perfect righteous life of Jesus Christ has already instantly been imputed or credited to his account at the moment of salvation. And this is one of the most beautiful parts of the Christian faith. This right here. Look what it says God did. God made him who had no sin, the sinless Christ, to become sin for us on the cross, that we might become the righteousness of God, period. So what happened when you got saved? God took your bank account, which was in deep bankruptcy, And he took all the sin and put it on Jesus. Then he took Jesus' righteousness and put it in your account. 
And so now your account is wealthy with the righteousness of Christ Jesus. That's the way it works. That's what he did. And it wasn't by works. It was by grace through faith. Look what the Bible says. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute or credit to his account. Sin be a bad day for anybody when they face the great, great white throne judgment and they face God and they have never come to Christ and they have chosen to repress the truth and live in sin. You're going to have everything you ever did in your account. And that's just a fact. Now, we're going to look at the word imputed a whole lot more in chapter 4, but look at this. The wicked person or the hypocrite will be judged by his deeds, not his faith because he hadn't put faith in God. His deeds will be credited or better put, debited to his account. As the song so accurately says, he paid a debt he didn't know. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. But now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, Christ Jesus paid the debt I could never pay. When the blood of Christ was shed, it canceled out the charges against us. Hallelujah. That's why I love that cross. That's why I want a 48-foot cross out here. Because on that cross, all your sins were washed away. They were washed away. Amen. So it's like you never sinned in the eyes of God. Now, when you were st- look what he says. Uh, he says, when you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, You were incapable of responding to God. God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it, all sins forgiven, the slate wiped clean, that old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets, Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Your accuser had a case against you until the blood was shed he was right but when the blood was shed he took your sin imputed it to jesus took his righteousness and imputed it to you that's good news now when we place our faith in the finished work of christ two things happen immediately first of all the sin debt is canceled and the charges legitimately leveled against us by satan are dropped and second the perfect righteous life of christ is imputed to us placed in our spiritual bank account But the hypocrite, the sinner, who is living by works will be judged according to those works. When you say, well, I don't want his righteousness. I'm a good person. I'll meet God on my own terms. Bad decision. Because you don't have any terms. You're going into court without a lawyer, friend. At the judgment, it will not matter who you are, how much money you had, or how many good works in your eyes you performed. If you have not placed your faith in the shed blood of Christ, your spiritual bank account will prove to be in bankruptcy. You are yet in your sins, and you'll answer for them. And God will judge accordingly, Paul writes, without showing special favor to anyone. For God does not show favoritism. Verse 11. God doesn't show favoritism. He doesn't care if you're Donald Trump. He doesn't care if you're Mother Teresa. If you're not washing the blood, you're going to answer for your sin. Y'all see this now. Well, Pastor Jeff, this is narrow. Yes, it is. Well, this is sort of exclusive. Yes, it is. Well, you're not giving me many options. You don't have any but one. I'm trying. 
But that's the message of the Word of God. We don't like that in our politically uh, correct day. But God doesn't care about political correctness. Politically correct people are going to meet God and answer for their sins. All right? Now, Paul next talks about those who have possessed a level of light. Now, this is going to answer some questions for some of you. What about people that never heard the gospel? Here you go. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Those who have the word of God have much more light than those without it. Because you're in here, you're in a church, and you've got a Bible, and you've read some of that Bible, you're going to answer for that light. These people who have grown up in church, heard the word a million times, and never repented, never turned, they're going to answer to God for all that light they had they never responded to. There's a responsibility every time you hear light. You're going to be responsible for the truth you hear tonight. So will I. The possession of an open Bible greatly increases our ability to know God's will. But light is light regardless of how dim or how bright it might happen to be. Now watch this. If a person were lost in a dark cave, desperate to get out, man, I'm going to die if I don't get out of here, and they see the least glimmer of light over yonder, there's light. I see it a little bit, but it's light. Do they head towards that light if they want out of there? Oh, they head to it as fast as they can get there. Get me out of here. He would move towards the light with joy. But if he had some guilt to hide, he would not respond to the light, except to hide or flee from it, regardless of its dimness or brilliance. Okay? Now look where he's going here. This is why Jesus said, and judgment is based on this fact. God's light came into the world, Jesus Christ. But people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light. Period. And they refuse to go near it in that dark cave of theirs. They won't go near it for fear that their sins are going to be exposed when they come into the light. But those who do what is right, they're happy to come to the light. Hey, if you're living a right life, you're happy to come to the light. You want to be in the light. So others can see that they're doing what God wants. Now, if you really want to be free, the slightest glimmer of the dimmest light will pull you toward it. Paul says that doom awaits all. Doom awaits all who reject the light. But for those who have had a greater advantage, there is less excuse and greater guilt. Now, what the Gentiles had was not written in written form. We've already seen. What did the Gentiles have? What did he tell us in Romans 1? The Gentiles have the, the testimony of nature. That's a dim light compared to hearing the gospel, but light in that cave, nevertheless. It brought my dad to seeking for the brighter truth where he was finally saved. So if I'm in that cave and I see the dim light, there's a dim light. Wow. God had to have made this. That's not as bright as the gospel. But Paul says, those who die having had that much light and not responding to it will answer for that light. And he also tells us that God put in all of us a conscience. And we talked about that. We've all got a conscience. 
a sense of right and wrong, and that's light. And when you snuff it out and say, I don't want that light, God says you're going to answer for that dim light. Though it was dim, it was light in the cave that could have led you on, but you didn't want it, and you snuffed it out. It may not have been as clearly spelled out as what the Jews had been given by Moses, but the Gentiles, they did have the basic moral concepts of God written into their consciousness by God. To those moral codes, their conscience bore witness. He says, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law, what a powerful passage here, catch this. When Gentiles who do not have the law, they don't have the word of God, that is, The Jews had the Old Testament, but the Gentiles didn't have the Word of God. The Word was given to the Jews at first. When they who do not have the Word do by nature things required by the law, they do it naturally. They know what's right and wrong. You shouldn't steal, shouldn't kill, and so on and so forth. They are a law for themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they have the dimness of the light of the conscience. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and what does the conscience do? Their thoughts either accusing or now defending them. When you do what is wrong, your conscience accuses you. When you do what is right, it defends you. God put that in there. According to Scripture, conscience is intended to be a goad, not a guide. The person who says, well, let conscience be your guide is a fool. Yeah, the conscience is real, but watch this. Conscience is God's watchdog in the soul. When you do wrong, it barks. When you do right, it quietly sits in the doghouse. The conscience cannot act as a guide. You know why? Because it can be seared, blunted, and silenced by years of sin. So if you let conscience be your guide, that's not wise. Because your conscience may be all messed up from years of sin, could be seared, blunted, deafened. For instance, Paul talked about false teachers whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. The conscience that's in you and me has to be educated and monitored by the Word of God. That's why you better stay in the Word. You know what it does? Every time you're in the Word, it's like having that flint and the knife And you're sharpening the knife on that flint stone every time you read it. Every time you read the Word of God, you're sharpening the knife of your conscience on that flint stone. And if you get away from that flint stone, the Word of God, your blade, that blade is going to grow dull and ineffective. You've got to keep it sharp. Okay? Some people even dispense with their consciences altogether. I've sure seen them all the time. Others, like a coat, take it off or put it on depending on the circumstances. Paul's point is that conscience is a light, however dim, that bears witness to the fact that man lives in a moral universe and is ultimately answerable to God. Everybody doing good? Say amen. Amen. Now finally, Paul shows that authenticity is inward. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you're instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law uh, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? 
You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people shouldn't commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blaspheme among the Gentiles because you're preaching one thing, but you're living another. You preach and teach it, Paul says, but you're hypocrites that don't live it. Others see that, and you're bringing a bad testimony. True spiritual authenticity is only found within you. You've got to be born again. A man is not a Jew, he says, if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one where, everybody? Inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Now that man that's been truly born again will receive praise from God because the blood has washed his sins away. Hallelujah. All right, let's stand up together, can we? Now, he has put everybody under sin. He has put the whole human race guilty. And yet there is an answer, and it is the blood of Jesus, the amazing grace of God by faith. And when you put your faith in him, you become a Jew inwardly. You become saved, transformed within. So, when the Lord Jesus returns, he'll scan the human race. The Bible says his angels will come with a sickle in their hand. And they will know who has the blood and who does not. That's scary, isn't it? They'll know. And those that have been covered in the blood, they will say, redeemed. But those who have not been covered, they will say, damned. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Let's pray, Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord God, that you have washed us in the blood of the Lamb. Lord, we certainly do not harshly judge people out there. We were there, but we do judge the fruit of the tree. And we see the fruit of the tree as wicked and evil and spiraling into that terrible abyss described in Romans 1. And we also see, Lord, that it's time for everyone to become truly transformed within by the blood of the Lamb. Lord, help this church to be a light that shines into the dark. Help us to cast that net out there and win many, many, many souls while it is still daytime. And Lord, we thank you for it. Now let's just take a minute. And I want you to say, Lord, thank you so much for the blood that has redeemed us. Redeemed us. And that we will not answer for our sins. Thank you for the blood. 